0: Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. You know, before we get started with today's show, I wanted to mention that this is the first episode of the now nonprofit Politics Guys podcast. So, uh, Jay, there's not going to be any more of that. Uh, hold that thought for just a second. So we can talk about, you know, men's grooming products or something. We're like not showing for the
1: man anymore. No, no we are not. Um, and,
0: you know, we really want to thank everyone. But, who, but
1: I, I have to say, I, I yep. really do like the R shave club. Seriously. Yep, but, absolutely. without a but, doubt. No.
0: Yes. But, but anyway, we, we <laughs> do want to thank everyone who, who made it possible for us to get to where we are today. And, you know, I think we're, we're we're fairly excited about what's in store and we really hope you'll keep on you know listening commenting and and supporting us as we sort of leave the advertisers behind and you know kind of put it all in your hands so thank you very much all right you know we were going to start the show With a look at the budget deal, and we'll still talk about that, but before we do that, I thought we'd briefly discuss something that happened, well, after we decided on our stories for the week, which we do midday Friday, usually. Uh, Late on Friday, it was announced that President Trump would not be releasing the Democratic response to to the Nunes memo alleging FBI, well, misconduct, or at the very least, I guess you could say, extreme sloppiness. Related to a visa warrant application that was obtained in connection with the Russia investigation. Now, the administration cited security concerns that were raised both by Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein and FBI Director Ray. Now, many Democrats, of course, were quick to point out that the administration seemed entirely comfortable ignoring these concerns raised by the FBI and and Department of Justice when they decided to release the Republican Nunes memo, though. To be fair, the president did direct the Justice Department to work with Congress so that the Democratic response could be made public. And so I'm sort of withholding judgment here. I want to see what happens and if this memo comes out within the next few days, in which case, maybe that, you know, that seems possibly reasonable to me, especially since I think there's a distinction to be made here that my understanding is that when it came to the the Republican memo, the the concern that the FBI and the DOJ raised were about incomplete and misleading information, which seemed to me to be a pretty good concern. But here it seems much more like a cons- uh, like a security concern with actually the, the information that's being released. And I think that might be an important distinction. So I'm, like I said, I'm sort of withholding my, my judgment on this. Jay, any thoughts? Yeah, no, I,
1: well, I think... Uh, Not to just pat myself on the back, uh, but I think I sort of predicted this last week. uh, If I am Adam Schiff uh, and I am preparing the Democrat response memo uh, and I am am playing sort of a Machiavellian game, which is what these folks do, I would load that memo up with every bit of secret, top secret intelligence I possibly can. Um, uh, in order to sort of force this result, so that the president could not okay it, uh, I think it will will be released eventually, but it'll go back and get scrubbed. Uh, and I think, as we we both said, the um, the Republican memo, there wasn't anything in there that that would seem to compromise any sort of uh, methods or sources or or any of that sort of uh, intelligence information. Uh, as always, when we're talking about these kind of intelligence stories and stuff, because we don't know what we don't know. Um, So you know this this my my sense is um, you know with with classified stuff I'll just spin this out there. I mean, it's it's one thing to say um, you know Kim Jong Un had cornflakes for breakfast this morning, uh, and you say okay that's top secret that's classified, and, and some people say well why what does it matter um if you think for just 3 seconds it matters because you know someone who had you know so it's sort of like that i mean sometimes there's information which in itself is innocuous uh but can point to to a source or a method something like that that is not uh and that's why you have to scrub it so yeah and,
0: and i you know i in the name not just of consist well in partly in the name of consistency you know when when it came to uh the the republican memo I thought that the opinions of the FBI and the Department of Justice should be very seriously considered in this. I mean, and so I'm, you know, I feel like I'm being consistent in right. this. So a couple of things I want to... And again, their,
1: their opinion wasn't don't release, it was supplement. So yeah,
0: the couple of things I want to mention and, and you know, uh, before we move on to our next story is, is uh, number one, the... Republican memo: the the intelligence committee voted on a party line vote to release that. Whereas the Democratic response, actually, that was a unanimous vote on the committee to release that. I think that's important to to point out. But but secondly, I really feel like, and I say this a lot, the Trump administration mishandled this whole thing. Um, I,
1: I, I really, would, yeah. <laughs> <hell> you say? <laughs>
0: I would think in a more I know, in a more competent administration, I, what would have happened would have been. The President would have sent his people to the committee and said, "Listen, it would make a lot more sense, and it would look a whole lot better if these two memos were released together, and we had all this worked out. so let's get the FBI, the Department of Justice, someone from the White House, and you know uh, the committee together, and let's coordinate stuff so everything could come out at the same time, and this doesn't become this looks like this you know horribly partisan circus sort of thing that that to me. Would have been the competent way to handle this, but obviously that you know wasn't the way that this well, was handled. It's
1: it's, it's my uh, uh, perennial lament here. I think that Republicans are terrible uh, or tend to be terrible uh, at this inside baseball part of the game um, for for a whole lot of different reasons. Um, and you said and that before,
0: but, and I know I I disagree with you. It kind of sounds like well, if I only Republicans getting, were sneaky like gotten Democrats. Better. I think yeah. Gotten
1: better. <laughs> Um, well, look. I mean, if if we, we don't talk about sort of again the sneakiness and Machiavellian sort of tactics, that I mean, then I, I think we're not being we're not being honest. We're not being real. Yeah. But.
0: I just, I just disagree that uh, Democrats are somehow sneakier and more Machiavellian. I think that's, uh, I They're think there's pretty, there's better parity. Better See, I think you're totally wrong about that. But anyway, I understand <laughs> your side of compliment. you having, you having marinated in the right wing media where you would think that, but anyway, um, you know, there was, uh, obviously there was a lot of discussion about uh, the memo. And of course we talked about this in our last episode and there was one, a listener in particular who responded with a, one of the most in-depth comments I think we've ever seen on the comment section. I, I can't. I can't read the whole thing. It would take. It would take a while. But I really feel like excerpts of it uh, that I can kind of fairly characterize the comment, and it very much relates to what we've just been talking about. And so I just wanted to without throw re- that without
1: hit. revealing. Uh, sources or yeah. methods.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, we can't say it's 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 Brian, uh, and so you can <laughs> you can actually read the entire comment on if you go to you know the the website and look for episode one thirty five. But but I but I think it's important to bring this up. So anyway, uh, here we go. Brian writes: the idea that gave life to this podcast and it acts as the mission statement for each episode is profoundly admirable. I like the way this started. You know, uh, the belief that two people of disparate ideas Yeah, you know, you have to worry about that, right? But anyway, uh, he goes on to say that this promise is what frequently makes it so frustrating as a listener when the show fails in this stated goal. Um, He said, this will be interpreted perhaps as bias, but I honestly believe that Mike strives to uphold his end of the debate as evidenced by how often I am surprised by his perspective, but all too frequently, Jay disingenuously does not prove by how predictable I now find his opinions on most every issue.
1: Why? Wow,
0: then we No, right. it's not it's, I don't throw this in because I want to attack attack Jay here. But moving on, he says, hearing him get incensed about the contents of the Nunes memo, for example, hearing him repeatedly try to bait Mike into admitting some sense of shock and outrage at the supposedly suspect actions of the FBI reads as ludicrously hypocritical for someone who, every time details of potential collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia come out, has argued that it is wrong-headed and improper to talk about the investigation while it is still in motion. So that, and he goes on, kind of along those lines. But but Jay, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on that. You know, basically, he's essentially saying that that you and I think you know Republicans, a lot of, a lot of folks on the left are saying this as well. That Republicans are being sort of oftentimes intellectually dishonest or inconsistent in this. And in the case of you, obviously, he's saying that. Well, how can you say let the investigation play out when it's a Trump-Russia thing. But if it's the Nunes memo and accusations of misconduct against the FBI, you're much more ready to reach a conclusion before the investigation uh, ends. At least that's what I took it to be. So I wanted to get your, you know, your
1: uh, response to that. Well, I I think, and we can address this because you and I have talked about this uh, sort of off the air, just in how we want to handle some of these stories, is that We don't want to be reporting on uh, the rumor or the innuendo, or here's a story from an unnamed source that says XYZ, but we will report and respond on stories when something actually happens. For example, a witness appears before a committee and gives testimony, or in this case, a memo comes out and says, here are uh, findings, whether they're preliminary findings or not. so, Amy my my sense is that, look, i I haven't seen, and we haven't seen any findings uh, thus far to support uh, a, a collusion claim. I mean, there's been discussions, there's been the innuendos, there's been uh, there's been the uh, convictions uh, for things that are other than collusions. So, I mean for not convictions uh, indictments uh, for money laundering, uh, one I guess taken a plea. Um, but we haven't we haven't seen those those findings. Of here is is the collusion, um, so that's that's why I haven't I've said let's withhold judgment on that till we see something. Uh, perhaps we'll see something like that in this this Democrat memo. I don't think we will because this is focused more on the the, the FISA process. But but maybe there's there's some other piece of evidence in there uh, that would indicate uh, that that there's some sort of you know collusion. And again, we've had folks like Adam Schiff who have been out there saying uh, there's a there's a strong case. There's a strong case. Um, but but we haven't actually seen those facts yet uh, and and again by by collusion, it's you know let's let's define what we're talking about. We're talking about uh, Trump or the Trump campaign working with agents of a foreign government uh, to help him secure the presidency uh, through some sort of illegal manner um, uh, and and I haven't you know it, that's so to me that's that's why we haven't discussed that and and again, we held off on discussing the FBI and the FISA. Uh, uh, case uh, until the memo was was issued and there was an actual sort of anchor uh, to to hold on to here. All
0: right, hey, I think that uh, that would, based on that standard, then that seems like it's a consistent position. If, if I hear you correctly, you're saying that uh, you'll comment on public documents that are part of the process that are released, but not sure. on rumors and innuendos and and in in. Basically in that you you feel like you've been consistent
1: throughout. right? Okay. Right. And All I think right. your I think your position is, is the same on that too. I mean, we're not going to talk about, you know, right. whatever. Innuendo right? you know, and rumor. Yeah. as you know, again, sources familiar with the subject say, sure. uh, but if somebody shows up before Congress and raises their hand and, and, uh, uh, testifies, that's something different.
0: Yeah. All right. Uh, anything else on this, Jay, before we move on?
1: I don't think so. Well, There will be more. There certainly
0: will. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the story we were going to open with this week was, you know, what plenty of people on on both sides of the aisle, uh, Rand Paul and Nancy Pelosi accepted, see as a positive development. Uh, Late this week, large bipartisan majorities agreed to a budget. Now, the measure passed the House in a 240 to 186 vote. The Senate, and just, to interrupt, yeah, just to interrupt,
1: I believe there was going to be a song involved.
0: Uh, we'll talk about that in a minute, actually. Okay. Now, the, ahead, yes. the Senate approved it 71 to 28. Now, in the House, 73 Democrats voted for the measure, which more than made up for the 67 Republicans who voted against it. And of those 28 no votes in the Senate, 16 came from Republicans and 12 came from Democrats. So this is truly you know, bipartisan. And President Trump quickly signed this legislation, but Technically, it's not the budget. It's actually a continuing resolution that funds the government through March twenty third. And the only reason that was done was to give staff more time to actually, you know, write the thing, fill in the details. But unless something deeply weird happens before then, this is, you know, this is pretty much a done deal. And that's why what Jay was referring to for those folks who don't know is, I said I was so supremely confident there wouldn't be an actual budget signed by the time we recorded to show that if there was if there if that happened and I was wrong, then I would sing a song of my own composition entitled Donald Trump is great. Um and so I was saved by a technicality, but uh, it's still I if you check the wording of what I said in Facebook, I'm I'm still I'm I'm okay. Anyway, um
1: uh. you know I you mean go. I think it's sort of a mixed blessing of, of the one of you having to admit uh, you were incorrect and, and sort of also us being saved by, by your singing uh, yeah. this song.
0: But I don't know. I, I, it might be really good. Well, I'll It probably it. comes out of wash. Yeah, so. probably. Anyway, yeah, so what this budget does is, number one, it, it busts the caps on both defense and non-defense spending that Congress put in place back in 2011. And it adds around, oh, half a trillion dollars in spending over the next couple of years, which is what led to those really strong objections from the House Freedom Caucus, as well as a number of Republican senators, particularly Kentucky's Rand Paul, who managed to slow things down enough both to, you know, really annoy his colleagues and to actually cause a five-hour government shutdown. Um, Now, now on the House side, Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi staged an eight-hour, well, not exactly a filibuster,
1: but... You can't call it a filibuster if it's in the House, really. Exactly.
0: She just used her prerogative as Democratic leader to hold the floor, essentially. Uh, And she came out against the bill because it didn't include any action on Dreamers, which is a key issue for many in the Democratic base, of course. But in the end, well, she wasn't able to convince enough of her colleagues to withhold their votes. And now, I should also point out this budget takes another contentious issue off the table until 2019, and that's the annual vote to raise the debt ceiling, which, you know, in the past few years, the Freedom Caucus in particular has attempted to use as leverage to get spending cuts. Right. So I think that pretty much hits the summary. Jay, what do you think about this deal?
1: Well, this is, uh, again, setting aside the, what I think, but the I think this is one of the reasons why. Many conservatives have said for, you know, going on so many years now, Trump is not really conservative. Uh, This is a lot of money that's being thrown out there. Um, I, you know, look, I I see this as a, see, there I go again. It's sort of a mixed mixed bag, though. Um, uh, The good news is, yes, there was some bipartisan progress. Bad news is, it's a lot of spending. Um, But uh, Republicans live the fight another day. I think if you're looking, if if you're looking at the policy thing of this, uh, I'd say not not so great just because we're we're busting spending caps, we're spending more money than we have. Uh, Republicans are in some some respects betraying the the idea of being the uh, the party of uh, frugality. Um, but uh, from a from a political standpoint, tactical standpoint, I think it's a Republican win uh, in that uh, you know, the whole Nancy Pelosi episode sort of sort of came came for naught uh, and sowed some dissension in her caucus, uh, and, and, you know, making this a, a more difficult vote than it had to be, uh, for some Democrats. Um, and I think the, the good thing is the extending the, the debt ceiling. If you recall the, the government shutdown, um, brinksmanship we were playing a couple years ago and during the Obama administration, uh, dealt with the debt ceiling and, and, you know, a government shutdown is, is one thing. Uh, and you and I, I think have agreed that in most cases, government shutdowns are sort of—it's sort of a little bit of a circus and a, a you know a big big photo op sort of sort of event, but they are in the end more or less benign. Um, missing a, a a debt payment uh, on the debt or or, or missing the debt ceiling—that is is not. Um, so I you know I think look the the markets uh, most everyone should be happy that that debt ceiling. Ah, uh, piece has been moved down the road. Uh, I, I get, I get where conservative Republicans come from, in that that was a key piece of leverage because it was sort of, you know, almost a a nuclear brinksmanship type type move. Um, but, um, you know, so Pelosi ended up with with really nothing. Um, I disagree. And, uh, okay, what I disagree
0: because I think she knew it was going to pass. I, I don't think she thought that she'd get the votes. But what she did is she. You know, she played to her base, uh, a very vocal uh, part of her base, and I think that that was important for her to do for symbolic reasons. Now, so I, I think she got something from that. You know, and sometimes in politics, you do things that you know sure. aren't going anywhere. Just so I think she got that. Um, but you know, also I think I disagree. No, I, I would I
1: would agree that makes sense. The playing the base and maybe defends some members from a primary.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, and I also agree. Well. Rand Paul's a, a funny guy. I, you know, I uh, I disagree with him vehemently on some things, but I gotta say, I admire his. I, he feels to me like a truly principled guy who sometimes I think is just absolutely wacko. But you yeah. know, um, you know, and there was something that uh, my favorite, one of my favorite, perhaps my favorite conservative writer is Jonah Goldberg. Who writes in National Review. Uh, he he's funny. Uh, he's perceptive. He's wrong a lot, but he's he's so worth reading. And what he wrote about this, I think, is worth, uh, is worth uh, retelling, at least in part. He said, regardless of Paul's political calculations, his arguments were entirely right. If you passionately insisted that runaway deficit spending was an abomination under Barack Obama, there really is no way you can defend the same thing under Donald Trump. And he went on to write, not only does this budget blow up any pretense of ideological consistency, there isn't even a coherent economic theory behind it. Borrowing and spending more when the economy is doing well violates not only
1: Keynesianism,
0: but traditional conservatism. And I think Jonah Goldberg is exactly right on this.
1: Amen. John, yeah. Well, I, no, talking. I, I, am uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of Jonah Goldberg and he, I'd say he usually gets it right. Um, the piece I think we're Democrats lost on this uh, is that by the Pelosi speech and by trying to protect some incumbents and and tying this to, uh, the dreamers in immigration, um, they've painted their car- party into a little bit of a corner um, as being, look, that this, the, you know, their their party is sort of a one one issue uh, party. So I think that's that's what some Democrat moderate Democrats were trying to avoid uh, because because look, there's going to be in the next uh, next several weeks, and and I believe the uh, the Senate has committed to starting debates on some sort of broader immigration reform, which would include some relief for the dreamers, uh, most likely coupled by some uh, greater border security and who knows what uh, on, on the uh, issues of uh, the, the lottery and and uh, chain migration, or as you like to call it, family reunification. Um, which is
0: what the, the actual term is, but go ahead. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what the term is, but you know, if you want to make no up one split your own. The fa- it, How do the families get split apart though? All I'm saying is that you want to use your, your, because someone volunteer,
1: it's not as if they were, you know, somehow split apart by the U S government. It's one person decided they were going to move. I'm just, I'm just using Uh, the official term and you're using the Republican talking point term. That's okay. The unofficial. Okay. Anyway, Uh, regardless, there, there will be a discussion, uh, on both those terms, uh, uh, which was something that would, had been committed to beforehand. Uh, and, and I think there will be some, and the Democrats will be in a tough spot there, uh, because, uh, look, I think they're are they going to be able to sacrifice the dreamers in order to uh, score points on these these other immigration pieces which are less popular with the, the, uh, the American people.
0: Yeah, I, I want to move away a little bit from the, I'm never really all that comfortable with the who wins, who loses, political kind of point-making thing. But, but I want to move away and talk a little bit about the actual budget that was agreed to. A couple points I want to make about that. Number one, our current national debt is around $20 trillion, uh, which is, you know, that's a lot of trillions. Um, and according to Congressional Budget Office projections, interest payments, just interest payments on the debt, will be $307 billion in 2018. And if current trends continue, a decade from now, they will be $818 billion. And the debt as a percentage of our GDP is currently right around 106%. Now, you know, and, and a lot of Republicans uh, were, were really pushing to more money for the military, right? That was a big thing. Sure. And if you take a look, Military world military spending. The United States spends 36 percent of all world military spending. In 2016, they spent uh, we spent 611 billion dollars. Number two, an incredibly distant number two was China at 215 billion, and an incredibly distant number three was Russia at 69.2 billion. And my point about this for a Although long time. Although I'm a little
1: time, curious how how we know all those numbers.
0: Well, you know, I
1: fine because uh, you know, I yeah.
0: you know, I let's say this, Jay. Maybe you can agree to this, maybe not. I don't know. But it is essentially incontrovertible that the United States spends far, far more on the military than any other country.
1: Um, no, I, I geez, I'll I'll contradict you on that, maybe. Well are we in the top are we in the top <laughs> three and have we historically been in the top three since uh, World War Top II, Top three? Yes, no, 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 Jay. No, no. We spend way,
0: way more. We spend more than the next seven countries combined. I mean, this is. Fairly, you know, this is. There, there's no real disagreement about people who study this thing. We spend a ton more in the military than anyone else, and, and there's just no question about this. I mean, all the data shows this. There's no. We got the, serious, and we got the,
1: My question is the data sources, but. You know dear, know, dear dear Vladimir, how much are you spending on your military? You know that's oh, I've not. it right You here. know how that's not you know, how it works, Jay. But.
0: Okay, fine. So you just want to question the data source? You're, you know, you're wrong. That that's fine. You're oh, look, along. I'm
1: I'm agreeing in, in principle that we we spend a uh, tremendous amount on the military. Yeah, more than the most the most of any Western country. The most of anyone,
0: the most of anyone. Uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, the point being is that I think we spend way too much on the military. You know, there are, every year. There are plenty of programs that, in fact, you know, uh, analysts and even people at the Pentagon say, you know, we don't actually need this weapon system; it doesn't make sense. And uh, and Congress says, oh no, we really think you need it because they see it as a jobs program essentially, which is, you know, not exactly the, the best kind of jobs program. So there's a lot of this stuff, and you know, I've been studying this for for decades now. Actually, God, I'm getting old. But uh, and so to me, this this is you know a great opportunity to think about what our commitment should be, what the right size for our military should be. And, you know, if if people are willing to force all this austerity on domestic programs, and I think in some cases, maybe that makes sense. I think we should force some of this austerity on military programs. And because most of this military spending isn't on things like, for instance, propping up our still pretty bad veterans medical system, taking care of people who serve, uh, you know, Taking care of the troops, essentially, it's for these weapon systems. These oftentimes hugely cost overrun white elephant weapon systems, and that's where I think we need to really focus. All right, um, you have anything else on
1: uh, on the budget before we move on? No, no. Other other than uh, again, I you know I don't think we're in disagreement that this is a a lot of spending. uh, That government spending is is often uh, misplaced, uh, wasteful. Um, and, and, uh, it's unfortunate that it, it's, uh, it's not a little, a <laughs> little more svelte budget. Uh, um, but yeah, other than that, I mean, I, look, I, I don't disagree with you on the, on the military spending is, is some of these things misplaced. Absolutely. Um, so.
0: Okay. Well, you know, uh, Jay, we've, we've talked about gerrymandering in the past, All, you know, but mostly when we've talked about it, it's been in terms of court cases that are challenging, you know, district design, right? But right. But this week, there was actually some big news in this area that doesn't involve a legal challenge in our very own state of Ohio, where the legislature passed a bipartisan redistricting plan with, well, no opposition in the state Senate and only 10 no votes to 83 uh, votes approving it in the state's lower chamber. And it's kind of interesting the history of this. The plan came together thanks in part to pressure by a group called Fair Districts Equals Fair Elections, which was working toward putting its own initiative on the ballot this fall. And the legislature didn't want that, understandably, so they wanted to control of this. And so the measure that they passed still keeps redistricting within the legislature, but new maps would require the approval of three fifths of lawmakers, including half of the minority party. And and now. There are various fallback provisions if the legislature can't reach agreement, and all of these, though, would require significant minority party approval to move forward. Though in the event that everything falls apart, the majority party can still draw its own map, but it would only last for four years instead of the usual 10. But even that map can't unduly favor one party, excessively split counties or cities, or draw non-compact districts. And this is a first-in-the-nation process, and if voters approve it in May, it could potentially shake things up in Ohio's 16 uh, 16, congressional districts. Now, according to the uh, efficiency gap criteria, which measures votes that are uh, wasted due to gerrymandering, Ohio has a gap that results in between two to three extra Republican seats. And Currently, 12 of Ohio's 16 House districts are held by Republicans. So, Jay, I wanted to get your take on this. I think it's a, i I'm a I'm a big fan of this. I think the Ohio legislature got together, did the right thing in the spirit of bipartisanship. This is something that the governor wanted to see happen. And I'm I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of my state here, and I hope this could be kind of a model for so many of the other states that don't do it this way, because, you know, the vast majority of states don't have a process like this. And I think it's great. What do you think, Jay? Yeah,
1: uh, as am I uh, proud of my state. And actually, I, I think, uh, Mike, I'm going to be working to try to get some of the principles of the, 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 the folks who were in these discussions uh, to come on the show for an interview. Oh, that'd be um, great. In the, next, in the coming weeks. Uh, and also, look, I think there's there's a really great, and I'll, I'll reference this in the one I'm reading, um, analysis of, of how this breaks down. And it goes to, this is a, a districting and redistricting is a really tricky process. I, I don't think uh, uh, a lot of people appreciate all of the intricacies that go into it. Because it isn't simply, uh, okay, we want this Republican, uh, we want more Republican seats than Democrat seats. Okay, that's a part of it. Um, There are wheels within wheels within wheels uh, (laughs) as when these discussions go on. Uh, There are factors that, that, uh, you know, when you talk about making the districts compact uh, and contiguous, uh, reckoning that with also uh, some of the federal overlay uh, about majority minority districts uh, that make things difficult. Uh, and, and there is, there are personalities involved. Uh, so it's, it's a incredibly intricate process. And, uh, there's a really great article that, uh, we'll post from, from someone who's a veteran Ohio political observer. Uh, I should also say, that I think that this, um, the Ohio redistricting new map is not perfect. Uh, if, if you look at it, my district, is what has been referred to. And I woke up this morning and I thought I had thought of this myself. And then I read things and other people had already made this up, but, uh, the snake on the lake, um, (laughs) which is, which is my congressional district, which, uh, again is, is, um, if you look at the map, you'll see it. Uh, it, it is the one that runs just along the sort of along the beach of, uh, of Lake Erie from, uh, Chagrin Falls, Ohio, all the way to Toledo. Um, uh, and, and it is it is uh, certainly odd and, and it is strange that, um, uh, for example, you know, my congressional representative lives like two and a half hours away. Um, but setting that aside, I think the, the, the general uh, impression is this is it's always going to be imperfect and there are always going to be one party favored over another. There is always going to be politics involved in this decision. And and I think that's OK. And I, I tried to make that point a couple of weeks ago. Uh, as as having this resolved through a political process rather than a judicial process. And we're gonna talk in a minute of, of sort of what happens when you try to resolve it through a judicial process. Um, so yeah, I, I think this is this is a great step forward for the state of Ohio. Uh, we could have a, a really great talk on, on you know, how these things are figured out in the districts uh, and and what favors, you know, uh, for example, I, sometimes I just think the numbers that, that people use for proxies are, are incorrect. For example, saying that uh, Trump won 52% of Ohio's vote there, but uh, Republicans control 75% seats. I don't think those two match match up because I think there are a lot of Democrats who voted for Trump, a lot of Republicans who didn't and, and so forth, but that's that's a discussion for another day, but I will say, uh, yeah, go Buckeyes.
0: All right, yeah, well, let's hope this is, uh, let's hope the voters approve it and that it becomes a model for more states. So. Before we get to our next story, we'd like to thank our newest supporters. First, an extremely generous PayPal contribution from Judy, who writes, Go Jay. There you go. (laughs)
1: That's that's my (laughs) mom.
0: Now, we have a second very generous PayPal contribution from a listener who said, we didn't need to mention her name on the show, but she wrote a great message. And I don't think she'll mind if I share that. So I'm going to do that. Um, she, She writes, this one's for Jay putting it out there and taking the burn for the cause. Love you guys. (laughs) I continue to learn so much from all of you. Keep it up
1: um thank you and that was one from who wasn't my mom so yeah exactly <laughs> yeah,
0: not a relative at all as far as i know and I but i
1: understand your, your your uh need to remain anonymous well that's why i wanted <laughs> you know
0: i kind of well we had a listener who kind of took a shot at you earlier on and i kind of wanted to balance that out but anyway finally we'd like to thank spencer our latest continuing monthly supporter through patreon he writes hi guys i'm very happy i finally stopped spending all my loose change on beer long enough to contribute to your podcast I've been an avid listener since the previous primary voting season and occasional listener even longer than that. Your work deserves some compensation for me for all I've enjoyed and learned from you guys. Mike and Jay remind me of my brother and father, respectively, med student and then lawyer, funny enough. And Trey is cut from the same cloth as me as far as entertainment media, fiscal stance, and plenty of other similarities. Your show keeps me up to date on political news, but also helps me retain some semblance of my sanity at the same time. It's nice to hear. I also wanted to give a thank you shout out for your social media presence and response time. I appreciate providers who take the time to actually interact and have a little fun with their audience. It's a shame Mike won't be singing Odes to to the Donald for us, but maybe something like that will come down the pipe soon enough. Keep up the great work and all the best to you and yours. There we go. So thank you, Spencer. So, Jay, it looks like you, your fans kind of came out in force this week, uh, you know? And I was thinking maybe we should do like a Team Jay, Team Mike contribution thing. Uh, but then I thought, wait a second. Probably not a good idea for me, right? Because you and your you know fellow plutocrats there would probably just <laughs> exactly. overwhelm my side like you do in the real world of exactly. politics, the, the, basically. The, the Koch
1: brothers are gonna weigh in and yeah. drop a couple billion yeah. on this, I, so I maybe, anticipate. Yeah, anyway.
0: So, you know, everyone, now that we're ad-free, listener support, of course, is what keeps us going. So if you'd like to join all of our great politics guys supporters, just go to politicsguys.com and click on either the Patreon or PayPal links. So, Jay, as you mentioned, you know, another big gerrymandering story this week, Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court denied a request from Pennsylvania Republicans to intervene in a Pennsylvania state Supreme Court decision that ordered the redrawing of a congressional district that Pennsylvania Supreme Court said clearly, plainly, and palpably violated Pennsylvania state constitution. And when that states 16.2 percent efficiency gap, favoring Republicans in 2016 was actually the sixth largest in the country. And in 2012, that gap was number one in the country, again, in favor of Republicans. And at present, Republicans hold 13 of the state's 18 congressional seats. Now, I should point out that unlike the Supreme Court and, you know, with other federal judges, Pennsylvania's judges are elected in partisan contests where they serve 10-year terms. And after that, they run in a retention election, which doesn't have an opponent. Um, at, Jay, first, I was hoping to get your thoughts about the court, the Supreme Court, sorry, decision not to intervene. And then maybe I thought it'd be worthwhile to talk a little bit about judicial elections or the lack thereof and how they might affect things. So, so what do you think about this? Well, the decision not to get involved.
1: Well, I think the decision not to get involved, uh, given the other cases that are pending before it or, or on the, on their way to the Supreme Court, I think that was probably appropriate. Um, this is sort of a, a state problem and they will let the state work it out. I think that's, I think that's that's reasonable. Um, I, I do want to say, though, the Pennsylvania and this is again, this is another example of why redistricting is, is so difficult. Uh, and one reason why I think it ought to be left kept from the hands of judges is is the geography of Pennsylvania is much different than the geography of Ohio. Uh, we're neighboring states. Uh, the the old joke about Pennsylvania is that uh, there's Philadelphia in the East or Philadelphia in the East and Pittsburgh in the West and West Virginia in between. Um, you know, Pennsylvania has that sort of situation, whereas has two, uh, big, uh, urban centers, uh, and then a lot of, of rural space in between. So making a, up a, a map, um, uh, just because the Democrat power is concentrated in the cities, um is is much more difficult in some place like uh, Pennsylvania than it is in Ohio, where you have, uh, let's put it, let's say three major urban centers, uh, Cleveland, Cincinnati, and Columbus, and then a bunch of sort of, of mid-sized cities, you know, Dayton, Akron, Youngstown, and so forth. It, it, so that that presents the challenge. And, and your your friends at Five Thirty Eight, I think, did a good job of showing all the different maps of, of how Pennsylvania could be drawn. And the other irony is that most of the maps do not look that different than the map that the, um, right. struck down.
0: Yeah. And I should point out, you know, I, I want to point out a point of agreement with you on this in that the fact that Democrats tend to cluster in big cities does have an effect, which means that, and you mentioned this in an earlier story, that saying that, well, President Trump won X percent of the vote or, you know, Hillary Clinton didn't. So therefore this number of, you know, Members of Congress should be represented, that sort of thing that that is overly simplistic and inaccurate, and that's why political scientists spend a lot of time trying to come up with a measure that uh, corrected that you know that took this into account because you can't do those simple things, and that's what they're arguing this efficiency gap measure actually does you know uh, and so it's not as simplistic and that in fact is what uh, they argued before the supreme court in an earlier case and this sometime early this summer i'm sure we'll hear from the court whether or not they accept this reasoning but for right now uh, uh, we don't know yeah and also uh, i want going, go, ahead, I, no, go ahead i said also i wanted to point out that i agree with you in terms of you know the supreme court historically doesn't like to tell state c- doesn't like to tell state judges what their state what their own state constitution means they tend to leave that to the state and that to me is the important distinction here is when the case revolves around the United States Constitution well that's one thing but this case you know revolved entirely around Pennsylvania Supreme Court's interpretation of their own state's constitution and i think rightly then the supreme court shouldn't get involved. And I would say the same thing, whether it was a Republican or a Democrat bringing that case.
1: Yeah. Three chairs for federalism there. You know, yes.
0: Absolutely. So, but what about that second thing? You know, I, I um I was actually surprised at, and I did a little research into judicial selection after this, right? Because this this vote broke down in, in the Pennsylvania Supreme Court among along partisan lines. And in fact, uh, Pennsylvania's judges, are they run as Democrats or Republicans. You know, they're not nonpartisan elections. And then they serve for these 10-year terms. And I was wondering what you thought about that sort of stuff. Ohio setup's a little different. I believe the elections are nonpartisan, but they serve for six years. Right. So uh, how much of that, do you do you've had a lot more direct interaction with the state judicial system than I have. So how much do you think that weighs in how these decisions are made?
1: I you know this is this is a tough a tough question uh a tough question to answer on a saturday morning to try to um, cuz we could have not only uh, a whole show about this we could have a whole series of shows going back and forth. Um there are advantages and disadvantages uh between appointed and and um elected judges and it's 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 really a lot of pros and cons and I'll run through some of them. Um you know, the typical uh, idea is that an appointed judge will be more independent. Uh, they are not concerned about, uh, the politics or the, the views of the public, uh, as those may move back and forth. Uh, the impression is typically that, uh, an appointed judge is also appointed, uh, solely on the basis of merit, uh, rather than perhaps they have a, a good political name, uh, that helps them get elected. Um, that said, the the appointment of judges, just as, redistrict, as uh, redistricting, is a political process. So it's it's impossible to take politics completely out of it. And I know there are a lot of groups um, uh, that have have worked hard and done a good job to to improve the merit based selection piece that goes into you know systems where you have elected judges. Um, but uh, uh, the the difficulty is. Uh, again, no one—it no one is really apolitical when it comes down to it, and and then again, I, I say that as a—that's sort of what the founding fathers would have said, <laughs> you know, exactly that you—you um, you can't trust your own instincts. Um, it, you know, so it, it's important. It's important, I think, therefore that there is some relief valve uh, for for someone to be removed, um, and again, judicial elections are, are are an imperfect tool for that but it's the only tool we've come up with yet. Uh, different states do it different ways. As, as you pointed out, Ohio has a, a straight election, uh, but six-year terms, uh, I think some states have purely appointed systems. Uh, some states have the what's called the Missouri system, which is sort of what Pennsylvania seems to be a variation on, which is election and uh, and then sort of retention election. Right, which uh,
0: I think the idea there is with those long terms and Not having to run against an opponent, that gives you a little more, a lot more, I would say, probably independence in that sense. But yeah, it really is a a fascinating topic. I'm sure you know, of course, You are you know, Jay, that some people have suggested maybe there should be some sort of at least term limits for the Supreme Court. 20 years is often thrown out there. And I think you're right. It would really be sort of fascinating to do a special show on, uh, you know, an entire episode on judicial selection and how that affects things. And I I actually know a couple of people who specialize in research on that. So maybe we should make that happen.
1: Yeah. And and the other, you know, uh, again, I Having uh, someone who works with a lot of state judges and, and federal judges, um, look, there are, there are some absolutely fantastic uh, elected judges. Um, so to, I don't want to, to sort of denigrate that you know if the, the implication is well, if you're elected, you're a political hack. I don't think that's the case at all. Um, uh, and, and again, some appointed judges are better than others. Uh, you can see this in, in the evidence of, of, you know, one of the Trump appointees who recently was, recently withdrew. With this was probably, you know, what, two months ago, um, when, uh, she, she couldn't, or he couldn't answer right. basic mm-hmm. questions about, yeah uh, about what certain motions were for, uh, about civil procedure. Um, so this, this is one of these things where there's, there's no easy answer. Uh, but, but I am sticking with my answer that because, Um, There's no easy answer to redistricting, and there's no easy answer to this judicial uh, appointment or election question. Uh, Redistricting ought to be kept as a political process and not as as part of a judicial process. And I hope the Supreme Court says that later on
0: all right well uh it is time for what we're reading uh where we you know take a step back and sort of talk about maybe some longer more in-depth thoughtful things that we're reading or sometimes in my case listening to podcasts or, or watching so my uh a couple things i have actually some books this week to recommend one is called naked money by a guy named charles whelan um I've used this book in my economic policy class. I just, we just finished kind of covering it. And it's really, it's, you might think that, you know, uh, economic policy and sort of a book about money sounds kind of dull, but it's, he is a one of the most engaging writers. And he, in this book, he does all kinds of things like explains why the gold standard is a horrible idea, which in fact, he actually convinced a number of my students who were formerly like, you know, uh, Ron Paulish sort of, we need to be on a gold standard type people. Um, it talks about our trade relationship with China, how exchange rates and currency manipulation works, what central banks do, all kinds of other stuff. And it's really easy to understand. He does, he does a better job than pretty much anyone I've ever seen to make economic policy understandable, and and yes, believe it or not, actually really interesting, a ton of great examples. So I would highly recommend this to folks. It is, I think, uh, a really great, fun book if you're interested at all in economic policy.
1: Okay. And Jay, what do you have this week? Mine my, my too, or maybe a little bit more on the micro level, um, but going to this redistricting question uh i would say two two things uh one there was a piece by uh a guy named Tom Suddies in the Cleveland Plain Dealer and uh tom is is uh he's actually a friend uh, someone i've i've known and worked with uh he is he is certainly not of the same political uh cloth as as i am uh but he is probably one of the most insightful political analysts uh i've ever met he gets it he gets what's going on um and he has a great piece on uh, how the Ohio district uh, redistricting um, uh, bill came about and, and again, so shows some of the wheels within wheels within wheels that that, that operate in, in this kind of policymaking. And then as sort of a companion piece to that, uh, I would uh, recommend – there was a, a piece in a, a publication called uh, penlive.com, which I'm usually not familiar with, but I just found this in – in prepping for the show and looking up details on the, the Pennsylvania situation, uh, they've got a great, very lengthy uh, discussion about the, the Pennsylvania redistricting and the issues and the problems. And, and again, it's a it's a it's a great compare and contrast uh, brings out some of these, you know, geographic demographic issues in Pennsylvania that make it a little tougher than Ohio and also the, the Supreme Court thing. And also that walks through sort of the various five thirty eight uh, iterations of here's how maps could look um, and, and what, uh, what works better and what doesn't. But, but it's, it's a great, it's a great sort of deep dive. Again, we usually try to go with the big, big picture overview on the, what we're reading, but is this, this is more the deep dive on, uh, uh redistricting. So
0: cool. Sounds great. And of course, all of this will be in the show notes. I sh- should also mention in, uh, since, uh, our final kind of, Nunez uh, uh Nunes sort of memo thing, uh, my, my blog this week is, uh, I called it Malice, Incompetence, and the Trump-Russia Saga. Um, It's sort of my take on the whole Trump-Russia story, and features a a cast of thousands, including Howard Baker, Napoleon, Richard Nixon, Bill Clinton, and uh, maybe even a few other people. I threw all kinds of stuff in there. The kitchen sink. And George Papadopoulos. I don't know. The hapless George Papadopoulos.
1: I should actually put him
0: in there, yeah. But if you're interested in reading that, of course, that's always at politicsguys.com slash Mike, so. All right. Well, there you go. That does it for this week's uh, show, this Saturday show. We hope you liked what you heard. Uh, You know, listener support, more important than ever to us now and now more than ever. Did I say that right? Yes, I think so. (laughs) Anyway, if you'd like to help us out, go to politicsciites.com and click on the Patreon or... PayPal links and if you want to support the show without spending anything you can share this episode with your friends followers pass along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter also leaving reviews and ratings on the show on iTunes also helps and as does subscribing to the show that kind of gives us our metrics as you will if you will and sort of gets us a sense of our audience size so and if you want to get in touch with us, well, you know how to do that, right? I bet. Mail And there's our Facebook page, facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorf, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us. Donald Trump is great. I do not equivocate, he's so insanely great.